one of my favorite passages in Scripture, weirdly enough, comes in Romans chapter 7, verse 14. And it says this in verse, yeah, verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do not, or for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find that... So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man am I. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? But I like how he ends this in verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we all are in the same position as Paul. We are filled with this sinful nature and we do the things that we don't want to do. The things that we want to be doing, we often find ourselves doing the opposite. And we struggle with sin. And we are in need of a Savior. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. His body that was broken, His blood shed for us. We have forgiveness. Thanks be to God for what he's done for us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for sending your son for us, Father. Thank you for the body that was broken, the blood that was shed for us. And Father, at this time, I pray that as we come to this time of communion, Father, that we would focus on that, what you have done for us. God, your love for us was so great that you sent your son for us and it's in your son if you realize this we are about seven weeks away from easter seven weeks away from easter and uh you might be depending on your personality you're either thinking man seven weeks that's plenty of time to prepare and get ready for uh whatever i we're gonna have planned or you may be on the flip side and think, seven weeks, man, that's not enough time at all to prepare. That's not enough time at all to, to plan things. What are we going to do? Seven weeks? Uh, but yes, yeah, seven weeks. And so uh, this morning, we are going to start a new series as we move closer to Easter. And uh, I, I love the title of this series because it has kind of a, a double meaning to it, uh, Easter eggs. Right, like we know what Easter eggs are. If you look up on the board, there is this carton of brightly colored Easter eggs, and you probably remember growing up, going out and looking for Easter eggs. And dependent upon uh, when you were growing up, you know, when you think of Easter eggs, you might think of like actual eggs that you're looking for. Uh, you know, somebody hard-boiled eggs you're looking to find. Um, and then somebody came along and ingeniously created plastic eggs filled with candy and money. Uh, brilliant idea. And so uh, that's one thing when we think of when we think of Easter eggs. But then we also can look at them 
as something different. Easter eggs, and then the reason I love this, it's an idea of a nod to something. This a nod to something. Uh, I think about it like this. Sometimes there is a book that you're reading, and uh, there's nods to a character or something from something else you've read, and uh, that's an Easter egg. Um, also, there could be a movie you watch, and in this movie, it alludes to a character that uh, is named after the author of a novel that the movie is based on. Uh, just different things uh, that we can think of when we think of a nod to something. And so that's another term for Easter egg. And I don't know if you know this or not, but the Bible is actually filled with Easter eggs. The Bible is filled with Easter eggs. We just call them by a different name. We call them prophecies. We call these Easter eggs prophecies. And throughout the Bible, we see prophecies everywhere. And all these prophecies are usually pointing to a, a one common thing, a Messiah, a coming Messiah, somebody who would eventually have to suffer, somebody who would eventually have to go through pain, somebody who would eventually be a lamb led to slaughter. These are prophecies of things that would come. And so as we get closer to Easter, we are going to spend several weeks looking at some of these prophecies. Uh, we're going to spend several weeks looking at how these things uh, lead to Jesus. And so this morning, we are going to start at the beginning. We're going to start all the way at the beginning. Does that work? Here, we'll do this. All right. So, uh, Genesis chapter 3, if you uh, want to turn there to verse 1, or you can follow along uh, on the Version Bible app. Uh, everything is on there. And so, uh, we're going to start this morning by looking at one of the first Easter eggs, one of the first prophecies. And to do that, we have to start at the beginning. Now, this isn't the complete beginning because things have already taken place in chapter 1 and chapter 2. At the beginning, we see that there is God. And what does God do? He creates everything, right? He puts everything into existence, everything together. Uh, the, you know, uh, all, the, all the planets, all the heavens, the earth, everything. God puts it all together. God creates everything. And of course, the best creation that God creates is man, creates man and woman. And he starts by creating man, and he sees that it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to be by himself. And so out of man, he creates woman, and they live in this paradise. They live in this garden, and everything is good. And, and God tells them, here's the deal. You can eat from any of these trees, but you cannot eat Right? He didn't say you can never eat. He says you cannot eat from the tree 
of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you do, your eyes will be open and you will surely die. But that's the beginning of the story. That's the beginning. God creates everything. He creates man. He creates woman. And it's intended to live in harmony and peace, walking with God. And this is how everything is intended to be. But we see in chapter 3, the plan falls apart. Everything begins to unravel. The plan starts to fall apart. So that's where we're going to start this morning, looking in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. And it says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will, certainly, or you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So... A lot of stuff happens right here at the beginning of chapter 3 where we see first the serpent who comes onto the scene and it says that he is more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. We see this is the serpent is the devil. It is. The serpent is the devil taking the form of this serpent. Revelation 22 uh, tells us he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for or for a thousand years. So we see this serpent, the devil. He comes and he's more crafty. This phrase crafty, this word crafty, could be translated to mean shrewd. He's shrewd, he's cunning, he's knowledgeable. And we see what he really is very quickly. He's a liar. Right from the beginning, we see that the devil is a liar. He is a manipulator. He takes people and he twists words and he lies and he manipulates. That is who he is. John 8, Jesus tells us this. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so he starts out as he is, his personality, he is a liar. And what does he lie about? Well, first he tells uh, the woman, hey, did God really say you must not eat from that tree? And she says, we can eat from trees, but we're just not allowed to eat from this tree because he says our eyes will be open and we will die. And he says, that is not true. You will surely not die. And then he begins to tell the second lie. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And this lie that he tells here is a very big lie because what this lie is, is he's trying to tell a woman, hey, he's jealous. He's jealous. And if you eat from this tree, he knows that you will become like him. He, you will become like him in the fact that you know good and evil. Your eyes will be open. You will see like God sees. You will have the same wisdom that God has. He doesn't want you to be on the same level as him. And so 
he's jealous, and he doesn't want you to eat from that. He knows that you would be like him. And then we see this in verse 6. It says, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. It's interesting here, once Satan gets her to believe the lie that this food is uh, appealing, it's good for substance, and it can give her wisdom, notice what happens. Her view on the fruit begins to change. Her view on the fruit begins to change. Before she knew, she was never supposed to eat from it, at least right now, and, and she was content. But as soon as this, uh, or this idea that you're not going to die, there is not going to be a consequence, God is just jealous, it changes her view of this tree. Alan Ross sums it up like this. He says, physical practicality, good for food, aesthetic beauty, pleasing to the eye, and the potential for gaining wisdom, to be in the know, these draw a person over the brink once the barrier of punishment is supposedly removed. Once that idea of, I can't get in trouble for this, is removed, how quickly sin looks enticing, doesn't it? When you know that, man, I can't be punished for this, I'm not really going to get in trouble for this, I'm going to keep this hidden, it makes sin more enticing. The problem is, she saw this as good to eat, it looked good, it would be good for substance, but she also saw this as a potential way to gain wisdom. There's a lesson to be learned here. Remember where real wisdom begins. Real wisdom does not begin with disobeying God. Real wisdom begins with respect for God, understanding who God is and what his word says, knowing that what he says, how he has put out his word is good for us. It is good for wisdom. It is good for learning. As it says in Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Real wisdom begins with the fear of God. And then we see that Adam also happens to be here Standing here, uh, hey, don't do that would be nice from Adam, wouldn't it? Like, hey, uh, probably shouldn't do this. God said no, but he's, he's here too, and he takes and eats as well. And they have their eyes open, but guess what happens? It doesn't bring the kind of wisdom that they were hoping for. It doesn't bring this peace and this joy and this comfort in knowing that we have wisdom. No, this first thing that happens as soon as their eyes are open, as soon as they see uh, what is around them, when they see each other, they see that they're naked and they become filled with shame and guilt they thought they were going to open their eyes and things were going to be great and peaceful and everything was going to be good. But no, once they open their eyes, it brings with them shame and guilt. They're fine, or they find that they're naked. Before, it didn't matter. They didn't know they were naked. They were just content with each other. They were content with life, what God had provided for them, what God had given to them. Now, they're shame. And you see, this is a pivotal moment in history, because it is in this moment, it is at this time that sin and death enter into the world. It is because of this that we see sin and death enter into the world, and not just physical death, not just, uh, you know, someday you will be born, you will live, and you will die, and you will return to the earth. Not just physical death, no, but it also brings spiritual death with it. 
Lawrence Richard sums it up this way. He says, it is important to realize that much more than the end of physical life is involved in the biblical concept of death. Death in scripture involves not only a return of the body to dust, but also a terrible distortion of the divine order. Death involves a warping of the human personality, a twisting of relationships, an alienation from God and from God's ways. It doesn't just bring physical death, it brings spiritual death. It distorts our personality, it twists us, it, it changes us. When sin is entered into the world, it changes who we are, it changes our personality, it changes everything about us, and it brings sin and death, physical death, spiritual death. And so the story continues in chapter 3 and verse 8. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate and so, one morning, think about this for a second. God's just out walking the garden. They were living with God, walking with God, doing life with God. God is out walking. And notice here it says it was in the cool of the day. I like, this. I like to believe reading this, that he was out walking in the cool of the day. God doesn't like hot weather. He doesn't like the summer weather. He wants to be out doing things when it's cool. So if you're like, man, it's cold outside, God favored the cold. He walked around in the garden in the cold. There you go. Um, seriously, he's out walking in the garden, and he calls out to man, where are you? And Adam replies, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. And God asked, who told you that you were naked? You didn't know you were naked. I didn't tell you you were naked. How did you know you were naked? Valid question that God asked here. And he says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Good thinking, Adam. Good thinking here. Playing the blame game is, is what Adam is doing here. She did it. She gave me this fruit. I was standing there. She took it. She ate and then she gave it to me. And so God's like, what is this you've done? And she says, hey, it was the serpent. He did it. He deceived me, and I ate. And so in verse 14, we see the results of this play out. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his hill. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And so God tells them there's going to be punishment for what's taken place. There's consequences for their action. Remember, they thought that they would eat this fruit and they would have knowledge of good and evil and everything would be great, but they forgot one thing. They're not God. And they're, because they're not God, they don't have the ability to comprehend the things that God can comprehend, the things that God knows. God told them there will be results that come from this. If you eat from this, you will surely die. And now we see the results of what will take place. And so first he starts with the serpent. The serpent will be cursed. He'll crawl on the ground all of his days. But even more so than that, he is going to be in a battle. He is going to be in a battle with God. He is going to face enmity between him and this woman, between his offspring and her offspring. And it says that he will crush your head and you will strike his hill. What does this mean? What does this mean when it says this? You know, he will strike your, or he will crush your head and you will strike his hill. Well, here's the, the truth. This enmity between us, this battle between us and Satan, it's going to wound us. You see, that's what happens with sin. Sin wounds us. Sin gets us down. Sin beats us down. We are wounded by sin. But one day, God is going to send somebody who is going to crush his head. I think it's this illusion that Paul calls out to in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And, you know, this is known as something called the Proto-Evangelion. And you might be thinking, what? Proto-Evangelion. It's actually, it's a big fancy word, but it's actually a really simple meaning behind it. The Proto-Evangelion is simply this, the first gospel. And this is it. This is our first Easter egg. This is our first prophecy. All the way in the beginning, in chapter 3, we see from the very beginning, after man has fallen, after sin has entered into the world, after death, physical and spiritual death, has entered into the world, God did not say, all right, you're done. You're toast. I gave you a chance. You screwed up. No more. I'm done with this whole person thing. No. What does he do? He formulates this plan. He formulates this plan. Someone is going to come who is going to crush the work of the enemy. He is going to knock out Satan once and for all. He is going to knock out his work, and he is going to fix what man has screwed up. And we see that here. He is going to come. Then he moves on to the woman. She will face painful labor and childbirth, and it says... Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. I like how the New Living Translation words this. It says, Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Her desire would be for her husband. That's a very interesting verse. What does it mean? It's likely here that this is our first instance of the battle of the sexes. 
because of what sin has brought into this world, her desire will be to control her husband. She will desire that position of headship. And that will not be the case, and it'll bring strife. And how sad is it? At the beginning in this garden, we saw peace and unity, and they worked together, and they were meant to be partners together. And now, because of sin, it brings strife. It brings conflict in marriage and relationships because of that desire to control her husband and this headship that God will give to man. It brings conflict. And then we see... For Adam, he's going to have to work to eat hard, or he's going to have to work hard to eat from the land, and it's going to be painful. This word painful here, when talking to Adam, this is the exact same word that is used for painful when talking about the labor that Eve will face in her childbearing. The same word for painful. They are both going to struggle in both the things that God is calling them to. You're going to struggle in labor. You're going to struggle in childbirth. It's going to be painful. And Adam, it is going to be painful for you. It is going to be a struggle for you to grow food, to eat. You are going to have to work hard. And eventually, you are going to work every single day until you die and you will return to the ground from that is where you came from. And so that is the story. That's the fall. And look at everything they gave up for this fruit. Look at everything they gave up. They wanted to be like God, that they may know good and evil. They wanted the wisdom that was promised to them, and it is not what they got. Instead, they get guilt and shame, and they are later removed from the garden. Look at everything they gave up. But see, here's the thing. God had a plan. God had a plan. Now, if you would flip over to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And in Romans chapter 5, Paul talks about a similarity that we see between Adam and Christ. We see some similarities between the two one brings something into the world, the other brings something into the world. One will change the world, the other will change the world. There is similarities between Adam and Christ. But there's one major difference we will see as we read through this. And so we're going to start in verse 12 in Romans chapter 5. And it says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin, by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. And so stop there for a second. We see... That sin entered into the world through one man. That man is Adam. Through Adam, through the mistake that they made in the garden that day, sin has now entered the world and death through that sin. And this is the way that death came to all people. Because of the mistake in the garden, we will die. Because of the mistake that was made in the garden, you and me, everyone in this room, will die because of that. It is through that action that death has entered into this world. Now, it says sin was in the world 
before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. And so, the law, as we know, is what brings death. The law is the one that hold, or is the thing that holds us accountable in this time to our sins. It is the law that was what would judge people based on right and wrong and what they were doing. But before that was even a thing, before the law of Moses even became a thing, there was sin and death in this world. And that's the point that Paul is making. Even if there was somebody who had not committed a sin death would still come to them. And I, I want to say this with sensitivity because I, I read this a lot when I was reading commentaries this week. It's the same reason we see infants who pass away. They're not, they didn't sin. They haven't committed sin. But it's a condition of a fallen world. That sin brought death into this world. Even before there was law, there was sin and there was death. And because of that, we face death. We face sin. And it came through this one man. But there is an answer for this in verse 15. It says, But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, that many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is a lot there to unpack. You know, it is said that because of what has taken place with Adam, sin will enter the world. We will all die because of that. For, in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will be made alive. And you see, this is the comparison. Here, how, or here are how the two are similar. Adam, one man, brought in sin and death. But on the other side, one man, Jesus Christ, will bring life and justification and righteousness. One man's sin resulted in death and pain and, and suffering. And one man will die to take care of all of those. And that's what it says in verse 15 and on. The gift is not like what has happened. The gift is not like the trespass. One man died and brought, or one man made a mistake and sin entered into the world. One man died so that it could flow to everybody. You see, the gift of God can't be compared with that one man's sin. The judgment of that one sin that Adam committed brought condemnation, but man... The death on the cross, the blood that was shed, guess what that covers? That covers everybody's sins. 
A multitude of sins. Sins from the beginning, the present, the past, the future, all of it, all of our sins forgiven on the cross. Justification and life and righteousness brought to us. And that's what Paul is saying over and over and over again in verses 15 through 21. Man, for all the sins of this world, grace abounds even more so. Of all the mistakes made, God's love abounds even more so. What one man did, God corrected with one man. And you see, here, I think, is the overall message that Paul's trying to bring here. Sin brings death, but Christ brings life. Sin brings death. Sin brings death, physical and spiritual. But where physical and spiritual death is, the love of Christ brings life. It brings eternal life. It brings forgiveness. It brings a hope of spending eternity with God. Where Satan thought he had so masterfully won, he has lost. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. You see, we were stuck in our sins and death and condemnation, but Jesus has come to beat Satan once and for all and bring us freedom from our sins. 1 John 3, 8 tells us, The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Hebrews 2.14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. That is the good news. That is prophecy fulfilled this morning. In the very beginning, God said he will come and he will crush your head. And what has God done? He has sent his son to crush the head of Satan. He has crushed his work. He has crushed everything that he has brought upon us. What Adam brought upon us, what man brought upon us. He has taken care of the work. There's forgiveness to be found this morning. And so here is the point that I want to make this morning. I want to hammer home, and it's this. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. You know, that is the truth. For God so loved the world. We know this is the truth because John 3.16 tells us this is the truth. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes him will not perish but have everlasting life. We know that God so loved the world. But here's the thing. We have such a flawed view of God. We do. And our flawed view of God usually comes in one of two ways. The first way is this. We believe that God is a jerk. Right? Like, that's a flawed view that this world takes with God. God is this cosmic jerk. He's sitting up in there in heaven. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about your sins. He doesn't care about your mistakes. But he wants to punish you as quickly as possible. He wants to make sure you go through pain and agony. That is who God is. If God is so good, why is there this? And why is there this? And why is there this? And we just have this view that God is this cosmic jerk. He wants to punish us. That's it. And I've heard all of the arguments before. Read the Old Testament. Look at all the times God punishes his people over and over and over again. He is just ruthless. He sends his people in the bondage. He sends his people in the slavery. God is a horrible person. 
But I read through the same Old Testament and I see over and over and over again, man, if you would just listen, if you would just repent, if you would just turn away from what you were doing, I would forgive you. You see, I don't see God's people just, you know, hey, God's just punishing his people to be a jerk. No, I see God's people making the same stupid mistakes over and over and over and over again. How many times do they have to keep following the false idols? How many times have they got to keep ignoring what God tells them to do? And yes, sometimes God puts his people through discipline. Guess what? You were disciplined once, I'm sure. I was disciplined growing up. Man, discipline is needed sometimes. Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father the son he delights in. Man, it cannot be said that God does not love his children. And I know what that flawed view is. God is a cosmic jerk. But man, over and over and over and over and over again, I see God's grace and mercy and love poured out on people that did not deserve it over and over and over again. And we are testimonies to that in this room. No matter what your story is, we are all the same in the fact that we are all broken and in need of a Savior. And God so loved us so much that he did that for us. I love how John says it. 1 John 3, 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And you see, here is the thing. If God is not loving, then why in the world did he put this plan together all the way from the beginning? All the way in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, he started putting this plan together, this redemption plan. And I've heard the argument said, why did he kick them out of the garden for one mistake? Why did he kick them out of the garden for one flaw? Have you ever thought about how much God loved them in that moment? Think about this. He tells them, we have to get them out of here. They cannot eat from the tree of life or they will live forever. Why is that a sign of God loving his people? Think about what would have happened if they would have taken from that tree and would have eaten that fruit. They would have been stuck in sin forever. No hope. It would have been revolving cycles. Sin, 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 sin. And there would have been no hope for them. God loved them so much to know, I don't want to leave my people in this revolving sin forever and ever and ever. I want to give them hope of an eternal life restored with me. That sounds like love to me. And he begins to orchestrate this plan all the way in the beginning. And he weaves this plan all throughout the Old Testament. Story after story, line after line, over and over and over again. God creating this opportunity to bring his son into the world to be redemption for us. But you see, here's the other flawed view that we have of God. This flawed view comes on the complete opposite side. Whereas we believe that God is a jerk on this side, this other side is us believing that there's no way God could ever actually love us. That God could actually love me. That God could actually look at my sins, look at the mistakes I've made. I've made a lot of mistakes. I have bad 
a bad past. I have so many things in my closet that if you knew all of these things, you would look at me to that. We have that view that there's no way God could love me. Look at all the things that I've done wrong. But man, that is not the case. Why would God go through everything that he's went through? Why would he go through all of the planning, all of the moving the pieces, all of the work that he has done to bring this plan to uh, fruition? Why would he do all of this if he did not care? You know, I think about it like this. I love what we do on Wednesday nights. And I love what we do on Wednesday nights with our D-Zone and our Aftershock programs. And let me tell you the work that goes into this. Man, Nora, she plans for D-Zone like crazy. <laughs> Everything is planned. What nights are going to be what? Uh, what events are going to be when? Uh, what we're going to talk about? How is that going to line up with Sunday mornings? Everything is planned down to a T. And why is that? Because Nora cares about every single kid who walks through that door on Wednesday night. She cares about them hearing the gospel every single Wednesday night. Cody does a great job of planning for our aftershock program, putting together lessons, putting together events, doing things. Uh, man, he works in the school. He works at Boys and Girls Club. He does all of these things to, to be around the kids because he wants the kids to know Jesus. And I know that he plans hard because we're constantly talking about, hey, what are you talking about this week? What are you working on for this week? He, he lets me know all of these things. It was interesting, actually. This past Wednesday night, he told the kids, you know, you always ask me, what games are we going to play? He goes, I don't think about the game until last moment. He goes, because my priority during the week is making sure you hear about Jesus. Because he cares about those kids. Teens, he cares about you. And the volunteers here on Wednesday night, the time they take out of their busy schedule to come and to teach children about Jesus, to teach teenagers about Jesus, to prepare a meal for kids, to, to just spend life with kids, they're here every single Wednesday night serving, telling people. Why do they do this? Because they care about every kid who walks through the door. Here's the reason I bring this up. You don't do that if you don't care. You don't spend so much time working on this stuff if you don't care. It's easy just to throw some stuff together if you don't really care. But no, they put so much time and effort into it because they care about what is taught. They care about the, the lives that these kids have. They care about God knowing them and them knowing God. They care and it is the same here. God cares about you so much that he would put this plan together, that he would orchestrate everything, that he would weave everything together so that we could have forgiveness. That has been his plan all the way in Genesis chapter 3 to now. He loves us so much. He wants every single one of us to have a relationship with him. Romans 5.8 tells us this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 tells us this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. That is love. Man, and so we've got to change our flawed views on God. 
God is not some cosmic jerk who hates us and just wants to see us fail. No, God is a God who loves us so much that he would send his son. And it doesn't matter what you've done over here. It doesn't matter what skeletons are in your past. It doesn't matter what you've done, what mistakes you have made. God cared so deeply for you that he sent his son for you. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And here we are. We're on the road to Easter And we celebrate the Easter season because we know what it means for us. And it all started here. Sin and death entered into the world, but God put together a plan to save his people. And maybe you are here this morning and you are feeling like there is just no hope for you. That man, how could God possibly love me? With all that I've done wrong, with all the sins that I've made, all the the problems that I've had, how could God possibly love me? God cared so much that he would go through all of this for you, send a son for you, send him to die for you, send him to be a sacrifice for you. Man, God doesn't do that if he doesn't care. But no, he cares deeply for you. And maybe this morning you're here and you have just been struggling maybe in your relationship with your walk with God and you've just felt distance. Well, guess what? The good thing is, is there's never a bad time to reconnect. Maybe it's just taking some time to talk with him, lay out your heart before him. And one of the things I like to do during the week while I'm driving is I just pour out my heart. People probably think I'm crazy, park, pull up next to me and I'm just talking to myself. I guess I can just hold it down. But it's my time to just pour out my heart before God. And sometimes we need to do that. We just need to pour out our heart to God. And so if you're here this morning and you want to give your life to him, you can fill out the connect card. So I'd love to talk with you. Cody would love to talk with you. If you want to come up here and talk, we'd love to do that. Or maybe this morning you just need to spend some time reconnecting with God, praying to God. I'd love to pray with you. Cody would love to pray with you. strike your hero that you will crush his head and God sent his son for us and sin and death wounds us but guess what Jesus sent his son to bring us life and forgiveness and redemption and righteousness and justification and all these things through him praise God for saving us through his son Jesus Christ if you have a decision to make I pray that you do so as we stand and we sing